Runasam. So I was asked to um, get a bit of clarification about a type of experience, a general class of experience, that really is part of the journey if you're engaging, especially in fairly intensive shamatha practice, uh, and that is the whole issue of nyam. I know many of you are very familiar with this, but not everybody, and I think actually for this retreat and generally for practice and for people listening by podcast. Very helpful to know. I'm using the Tibetan term nyam. I don't even know the Sanskrit, um, because we don't really have a corresponding term in English, uh, because we're not in this modern world. We're n- it's not a contemplative society, so things that are specifically associated with or emerge from very intensive contemplative practice are simply not on our radar. It's just not there, so we don't need words for them. Whereas a, a culture like Tibet, which frankly I think probably was the most contemplative culture on the planet until it was destroyed by the least contemplative society on the planet. Um, I mean, it's probably true. I mean, 6,000 monasteries for 6, for 6 million people, that's hard to match. And so in Tibet, then, they have an immensely rich vocabulary for what they were doing, just like, like we have a, one, a wonderfully immense vocabulary for science. That's what we do, you know, our modern society. Tremendous, fantastic. And so this term, yam, I'll translate it. It's meditative experiences as good as I can do. But now I'll give the definition that I've never read any place. I've just gleaned it from a lot of reading, a lot of reading and, and practice. And that is a nyam, a meditative experience, is an anomalous, transient, psychosomatic, meaning psychological and or somatic experience that's catalyzed by means of authentic meditative practice. Say it once again. It's transient. Number one, they don't go, they don't go on they don't go on for days and days, mon- months, years, and so forth. If they do, it's not a yam. It's a medical condition or something else, and so they are transient. By nature, they come up and they go, unless we do something to perpetuate them, and then that can give them some real staying power. We perpetuate them by grasping onto them, reifying them, possessing them, fretting, hoping, fearing. Then they can really get their claws into us, and they can last a little much longer. But now it's not simply a nyam, it's a perpetuated, perpetuated nyam that we are the ones perpetuating, right? But if we don't perpetuate it, they are by nature transient. They move on through, they, re- they resolve, they release themselves, and in that process there is purification. So they're transient, they're anomalous, that, which is to say they're out of the ordinary, they're weird, they're unusual, not part of your ordinary repertoire of experiences being embodied. It's out of the ordinary, or simply your experience of having a mind in this world with ups and downs, emotions going up and down, it does tend to be something out of the ordinary, anomalous. And, it, and out of the ordinary means just that. It may be really cool, really wonderful, delicious, fantastic. It may be just flat out awful. And it may just be weird, which is interesting, but just weird. And so that's kind of the variety I've seen. And I've taught a lot, I've taught for a while anyway. That's the kind of stuff that Really cool, really bad, and just really weird. Okay? And then some, some of the nyam are really purely psychological. It can be, for example, dread. Dread. When Genlam Rimba let the one-year shamatha retreat start in 1988, he gave one week of very intensive shamatha teaching, and then people just went in you know, for the year. And he and, he and I were both there. He, w- he was the instructor. I was his interpreter and apprentice 
for leading that retreat. But he told people right, right at the beginning of this retreat, they're going to really go pretty hardcore into shamatha for one whole year, right? And he said, it's very likely going to happen that over the course of the year, you will experience fear that doesn't have any basis in reality. That is, it's not a snake, a bear, there's no marauder, there's just, you're looking around and there isn't anything threatening you. Nevertheless, the fear that will come up is every bit as, as authentic, as real, as if somebody's running towards you with a knife or you feel your life, you're about to fall over a cliff. That's real fear, right? Well, this is no less real. The difference is that, in fact, there's nothing there to harm you. It's a baseless, groundless fear that has no roots in reality at all. That doesn't mean it's not real. Just like the emotions we experience in dreams. I mean, look, it's all a fantasy realm. There's nothing there at all, right? They're just, they're just like rainbows. I mean, it's just, just empty appearances to your mind. There's nothing that can possibly harm you. But that doesn't mean that our fear, our anxiety, dread, and so forth and so on can't be all of our emotions joy, bliss, and so forth, the emotions arising in a dream are no less real than the emotions arising when we're engaging with other people and environments and so on. So again, I remember his advice there, enormously important and very difficult to follow, was if you see a fear coming up and you look at it and you examine it with intelligence, you know, it's called vichara, you carefully examine it, and you see this fear has no reality basis in it. There is nothing to fear. Because you could be able to figure that out. If you're, you ask, what are you afraid of? Yeah. Are you afraid of dying? Okay. You may very well be. But then, are you dying? Have you done something? Are you, are you, are you dying? If it's a yam, no. If, it, you, if you are, well, we'll get to that quite soon. You know. <laughs> That's coming very quickly. You know. There's something to do then, too. But you may have a fear of annihilation. And that's really easy to say, fear of annihilation. So easy to say, just like Mary had a little lamb. But uh, it's just as easy to say, but oh man, when it strikes, it can be quite intense. As you are really having a sense experientially, viscerally, that you're losing your very identity. You're losing yourself. You're about to be extinguished, obliterated, become nothing whatsoever. And maybe with no return ticket. Well, that's, pretty, that's pretty intense. And you may have that experience. Because after all, you're, you're releasing everything you're identifying with. Your body, your thoughts, memories, language, everything. When you're settling the mind in its natural state, for example, or when you go into the practices we're doing here, everything that gives you that comfort zone. You know, well, okay, this is who I am. This is my history. These are my skills. These are my limitations. This is what I can look forward to. These, these are my family. This is my friends. This is where I live. This is my stuff. This is my stuff. Pardon me, but just one of the most hilarious images I've ever seen in any movie was Steve Martin in The Jerk. Anybody ever seen it? I mean, it's really corny. You know, he's a slapstick comedian, but he's pretty darn good at it. And there's a movie that came out like 25 years ago where he was from rags to riches. And you had this, all this wealth and so forth. And then got sued, and he lost everything. All the wealth, everything in one fell swoop. It was from riches to total you know, poverty. And so there he is, you know, leaving his mansion and leaving all the stuff that's all being repossessed. And he says, I give up everything. I release everything. I don't have any attachment for anything except this. Well, and except that. And he's picking up these pieces of crap from his, from his house, you know, like a broom and a box and a 
a pair of slippers. And by the time the poor schlep, the poor, the poor idiot is leaving the house, he's got all this crap hanging off him. Yeah. <laughs> except for this, except for that. You know, it really was. I mean, the words cannot. He just did it marvelously. It was so pathetic and hilarious at the same time. I gave up attachment to everything except for, you know, garbage. Well, when you go deep into shamatha, you're, you're, you are giving away everything. You know, everything you're identifying with, everything you're familiar with. And you slip into that, and you may very well, if the practice is going well, really freak out. That maybe, maybe there's no return. To, you know, I'm, I'm slipping into kind of this slide, and maybe there's no traction to get back. Maybe I'm going to be lost in oblivion. And all the other meditators will go along, and I'll just be... And, uh, and that'll be the end of me. You know, I'll just be lost in space. So it's funny. It's, it is funny. But boy, when you experience it, there's, there's no laughter about it at all. You know? And so what to do then? If that happened, it didn't happen to everybody. It did happen to some people. It did happen to some people. So what happens? When with your intelligence you see the fear coming up and you know this is, has no reality and this has no basis in reality, that people don't die of shamatha. I, I, I want to assure you of that. You know. They may die while practicing shamatha, but they'll not die of shamatha. You know. Unless you're practicing really crazy, like you know, totally pedal to the metal, pushing until you have a heart attack. But that's not what, how I'm teaching it. Right? And so when that comes up, then he said, what you need to do and now this, what I'm about to say, is really, really easy to say. Observe the fear and don't identify with it. And recognize it for what it is. This fear is real fear, but it has no root in reality. And it's kind of like Winston Churchill saying, you know, in the middle of the Second World War, there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, that's kind of it. That is exactly right here. If you freak out because of that fear, then that can really cripple you. You can become a nervous wreck. But was there any reality, basis in that fear? No. So you have to hold your own ground. What we're doing here in the, in the kind of the serenity of this peaceful, lovely, conducive environment, hold your own ground. Not too hard, eh? I mean, you get carried away by a little thought here and there. But, you know, it's not horrendously hard. You can come back pretty easily. You can lose it easily. But you can come back easily, too. Whereas when you have this great big Godzilla of fear coming up, and you're holding your ground and simply being present without grasping and so forth, that's what needs to be done. Don't reify the fear. Don't grasp onto it. Don't hope it, fear it. Don't desire it or be averse to it. Let it be and let it self-release. Let it self-release. And that is the only way through it. And if you can't do that, that will stop your practice. And in fact, in the Shamatha practice, uh, retreat, 1988, it did stop one person's practice. The person suffered no harm, but actually stopped the practice because couldn't go there. Could not do. And that... And this person was not a wimp, not a silly person or something like that. But that fear was so intense, could not face it without being totally caught in its talons, in its claws, in which case backed off you know, and really never got deeply into the practice again. Okay. So that was a pretty fierce nyam. Fear is, is one of many. It can be, again, it can be faith, it can be joy, it can be bliss, it can be paranoia, it can be low self-esteem, low self it can be rage, it can be dizziness, vertigo, so psychological, it can be psychological, okay? and a wide variety, the whole bandwidth, but they're just coming up, they're just being, as you're dredging your psyche, the stuff comes up, and you, the response is homogenous, all the great teachers are giving the same advice, 
be with it, and above all, most crucially, do not reify it. Now, what's reifying? Well, whenever we're in a non-lucid dream, we're reifying everything. Right? We're reifying. What does that mean? Oh, there's Michael. Michael, he's staring at me. Oh, that's a glower. He's going to come and get me. You know, but just the basic reification. There's Michael over there. What's he thinking? Oh, he's big, and he's he's the one guy here, clearly bigger than me. That's scary. You know. And so we reify all the time in a non-lucid dream. That's just the nature of it. We're fundamentally deluded, which means we're grasping under our own identity in the dream. We're grasping at other people's, the environment, everything. Right. In which case, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to everything. Some people are afraid to fall asleep because they have nightmares so frequently. The nightmare isn't hurting them at all. It's an empty appearance. It's watching a movie, for heaven's sakes. But if you reify it, then the fear, the misery, and so forth is as real as if you're actually having it in the, wake, in, in the waking state. So that's reification. What we do, and if you're wondering about reification, this elegant philosophical term, is what we do in non-lucid dreams. The phenomena are not there by their own nature, by their own side. They have no power to inflict any harm whatsoever. But if you don't know that, if you don't know you're dreaming, you will reify them, and now they do have power to terrify you, to harm you physically. You can hurt physically in a dream, which is bizarre since you have no physical body, but you still can, right? Let alone being hurt psychologically. And so that is the, the core advice, is whatever comes up, don't reify it. Be lucid. And this practice, settling the mind in its natural state, the practice we're going to be going into very shortly, probably tomorrow, of the shamatha without a sign, which we'll go into step by step, it really is just flagrantly, obviously, cultivating lucidity with respect to your mind during the waking state. So lucid dream is lucidity with respect to your mind while you're dreaming, which is really, really simple. You're recognizing a dream as a dream, which means to say that you're observing mental events and you're recognizing them as mental events, which kind of like sounds simple, but you don't do that in a lucid dream, in a non-lucid dream. In a non-lucid dream, those are not mental events. No, that's Michael. That's Gache, you know, the sinister nun, and so forth. <laughs> she's, she's scary. She looks so gentle and sweet. Oh. You know. And so it is just as... We are freed from all harm and all suffering and all pain, all fear in a lucid dream because you're lucid. So likewise, insofar as, because it's not just yes or no, but insofar as you become lucid with respect to your own mind in the waking state, as Lerip Blingba says, you know with certainty that you cannot be harmed by anything that occurs in your mind. And that's through the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, which is the practice of becoming more and more lucid with respect to your own mind. So whatever comes up, traumatic memories, fantasies, emotions, images, whatever it is, you're watching a 3D movie, you know, there's nothing possibly that can harm you there. They're empty appearances. So I think I, I mentioned earlier this wonderful just anecdote that I heard from a friend of mine in Norway who's uh, pretty, pretty good at lucid dreaming. Did I tell it here? I've, I've told it a couple of times since she told me. But she was having a very lucid dream. And a person came towards her in the dream with a knife. Did I say that here? Oh, that's a cool story. It's, it's short. But yeah, she was having this dream, and the person, but she's lucid. And the person, a, a man, comes at her with a knife to stab her. You know, menacing, really. This is a 
a bad person. And she comes, she walks towards him, and she takes his hand with a knife in it, and she plunges it into her guts. Yeah. She plunged it into her guts. Right? And I asked her, did it hurt? She said, no. No. She was lucid. She's taking a dream knife, plunging it into a dream body. It's like one rainbow attacking another rainbow, a holographic image. How can there be... Why should there be any pain? You have no nerves. There are no nerves in your dream belly. Right? None. There's no molecules. There's no matter. There's nothing. It's, it's a holographic image. Why should it hurt? Except you think it will. Right? Placebo effect. goes both ways. It's called the nocebo effect when it does nasty things to you. Right? Placebo means please me. And nocebo means don't please me. So we can bring upon ourselves mountains of misery with a nocebo. We do it every time we have a nightmare because there's nothing in the nightmare that's doing it. Right? But then you can take a sugar tablet and that may heal you of a very serious disease and not just make you feel better, but I mean, it truly is miraculous or at least amazing and there's no explanation for it in modern science. How is it that when you take that sugar tablet and you have faith that it will bring about some very specific change in your body, not always, but frequently enough that it's a, a major scientific issue, it brings out precisely the physiological change in your body that you had faith it would. Now that is totally weird. I wrote, when I was writing Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic, with a whole chapter on this, I wrote to one of the world experts on this. He's written books on it, he really knows the business. And he said, how do you explain this? That you feel better, okay, dopamine, big deal, you know. No, no, but not that. This is triggering exactly the mechanisms in the body that can actually cure the disease. And you don't know anything about your own body or physiology. You just have faith, right? said, how do you explain this? And his answer to me was, in writing, I've stopped asking that question. When you, are, when you're, when you have actually hunkered down for a lifelong lease in the house of materialism, and you're planning to live here the rest of your life, and there is no conceivable answer in that house, you either have to move houses or else you just stop asking the question. And frankly, it's a lot easier to stop asking the question than it is to get up and move into another worldview where that actually become intelligible. So that's actually the mainstream view right now. Is there's no answer and we don't have, we, we, Well, we call it a placebo effect. Does anybody, you're fooled, right? It's a placebo effect. You know. That's pretty cheap because it's a faith effect. If you wanted to give one word, it's a faith effect. But there shouldn't be any faith effect. Okay, so there it is. This mind, grasping, aspiring, and so forth, it can bring great good, it can bring great bad, but we're doing it. It's not in the sugar tablet any more than it's in the appearances in the dream. Right? We empower them. We empower them. And so, for the yam, whatever comes up, don't reify it. See it as simply appearances arising, if it's just a nyam. Now, I have to say responsibly, none of us should be going crazy here. And that is if, it's a, if, you, must, if you think it might be a medical condition. Go to a doctor. We're not doing something like, oh, this heals all diseases. If you have appendicitis while you're in meditation retreat, don't worry, just meditate harder. That's foolishness. You know, so we don't do that. If you think it might be a medical condition, then get it checked out. But when it's quite clear it's not a medical condition, maybe you go to a doctor and say, I don't see anything wrong with you. 
then pay your bill, say thank you. You've just diagnosed it as a nyam. You don't know what that is, but I do. You know, and go home. Right? And so there's the core advice. It's not easy, but it, in fact, it's the only way. It's the only way. The nyam come up. They can be physiological, somatic, really weird, unpleasant, vertigo, all kinds of weird stuff can come up in the body. But then it passes through. You know. So I won't elaborate on that. And Dujum Lingbo, or Padmasambhava, says in, in the Vajra Essence, he gives a list of about two pages of all of these. Most of them are pretty nasty. And then he says, that's, he's essentially said, that's just a short list. You know, there's such a wide variety of dispositions, karma, predilections, and psychophysiological constitutions and so forth. There's no way to predict. You know, what's, if you point to one person and say, what's going to happen to Emerson if she goes into a one-year retreat, meditates 12 hours a day, shamadu without a sign, what kind of nyam will arise? No way of telling. Generically, if she's you know, a bile person, a wind person, fire person, you might be able to make some general you know, generalizations, but not for specifics. So that's what Dujum Lingma states. So this is really uh, advice that is crucial. You will, frankly, not get by without it. I, I don't know of anybody. There may be people, but I just don't know of any, who set out on the, 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 the voyage of Shamatha and just have smooth sailing the whole way. You know, it could happen. I mean, Shapkar said, you know, I came, I saw, I conquered, it was finished. So maybe he didn't have any. I don't, I don't know, it's not for me to say. But the people I've engaged with, it's not smooth. You'll have these spikes, and they will be nyam. And you'll either know how to deal with them, and they will release themselves, or you'll not know how to deal with them, and you'll get stuck. And so those are your two options. Okay? So that's a little talk on nyam. Uh, Enormously important, and there's the great challenge. But it is the challenge to enable your mind to heal and enable the, the blockages in the body that may come out, you know, by way of the prana, blockages in the mind, karmic stuff to mature, to ripen, and to flow on through until you, come through, you get all the way through to the other side, this little trip, not the big trip to nirvana or to Buddhahood, but the little trip from your coarse mind to its ground, substrate consciousness. It's not a bad trip. Quite a trip. Olasu. So now, let us go back to this um, brief introduction, the summary of the first bardo, the bardo of living, which entails grasping. We're all familiar with that. I'll pick up right where I left off. The last sentence was, uh, likewise, by first devoting yourself to a qualified teacher and by acquiring broad learning and deep understanding, you should be able to proceed to the essential points of the path by your own power without error. Again, that's a very powerful statement, loaded statement. He's saying, get your act together, get as much understanding as you need to be able to really go on the path by your own power, and that is you set off and you should be able to do it. You should have enough confidence, enough understanding that you really carry on, and you can do so without error. So if we look at the life story of Milarepa, number one, he went through pretty awesome preliminary practices. I don't know if he recall his doing 100,000 prostrations, but he did a lot harder. Those towers he had to build and then you know, take down again and again. And so, but he had a lot of stuff purifying. I think you all know his story, or most of you do. Uh, no, he had a major, um, enormous amount of purifying. And therefore, that's what his, his teacher needed to give him. Major, major work to purify all the terrible karma he had, he had accumulated. Uh, and then when he was finished, when he'd, done what, when he'd done what needed to be done, and there were signs of purification, not just, you know, build 100,000 towers, 
there were signs of purification, that he had built enough, that he constructed enough. Now you can move on. Then Marpa embraced him as like his only son, gave him, power, gave him instruction. And then did he, stay with, did he stay with Marpa and have Marpa hold, hold his hand all the way through? No. Marpa said, okay, now go. Go in the mountains. Take off. I've given you everything you need to know. And then there he was. And then he had his nyam. He had his experiences. Right? But Marpa gave him everything he needed. So then when the big nyam came up, and some of them were pretty, pretty nasty, Milarepa was fully equipped. Fully equipped. He dealt with all the nyam, passed on through, and then he started singing. You know? It's 100,000 songs. But that's what he's talking about right here. And that is, Ledap Lingba says, be your own mentor. Act as your own mentor. And do so with, with precision as you are threading a needle. Remember the phrase? As if you're threading a needle. It's such a fine, accurate, confident understanding of the practice that you don't need to then be there with your teacher. Oh, but today I had a bad experience. What do I do now? Oh, I had a, what do I do now? You know, you're no longer in kindergarten. Learn it, and then you can take off. And that's what he's saying here. That's what Lerup Lingwa was saying there. And that's what he's saying here. You proceed to the essential points of the path by your own power without error. So, big sentence. That was the last one. He elaborates a little bit further. First, gain a sound understanding of the view, meditation, and experiential realizations. Here in this context, of course, he's referring to the Dzogchen view. Learn about it. Learn about what's a meditation. The experiential realizations. <clears throat> get some understanding of them. The nature of the grounds and the paths. These are the the stages of evolution along the path to awakening, the bhumis, the bodhisattva bhumis, the paths, the five paths, and so on, and comprehend them through your own experience. So get some taste, some taste. Eventually, you'll never be separated from the awareness <clears throat> that the appearances of this life are like dreams and illusions. If you really fathom the view, that is, if you fathom the Dzogchen view, you have necessarily fathomed the view of emptiness. And it's simple. It's transparent why I say that. <clears throat> and that is to draw an analogy. It's the most magnificent analogy. It's the closest one of all the analogies. Buddha Game 10. But among them, the dream analogy is so, so close. It's breathtaking. So when the Buddha told Rona, I am awake. I'm not a human being. I'm awake, right? What he's saying, we're in the waking state here, right? Well, that is, we're not asleep. I'm awake. In other words, he's saying, I'm lucid in the waking state which means I'm awake. That's what Buddha means. Buddha, Buddha's awake, right? It means lucid, right? <clears throat> if you're dreaming, your body's lying in bed and you're dreaming, and you become lucid, unless they be really, really lucid, you know, slam dunk lucid, then if you know that everything there in the dream is a dream, all these three creations of your own mind, then by the power of that realization, you have to know that there is nothing there in the dream, Michael Kilgore or Anigache or anything else, or houses or mountains or grizzly bears or dragons and so forth, there is nothing there whatsoever in the dream, either objectively or from your side subjectively, who you sense yourself to be in the dream. There is nothing there objectively or subjectively that actually exists by its own nature. If you don't know that, then you're not lucid. You know that this, this little persona, you in the dream, is completely empty of anything. It's just a little, like a puppet show. Or, again, a three-dimensional holographic image. You in the dream, completely empty, a hall of mirrors, empty appearances. You, that little person in the dream. right? 
And then everything you're experiencing phenomenologically around you, all the appearances, all the objects, people, places, activities, if you're lucid, very, very lucid, then you, you must know. I mean, it's kind of like you don't even have to think about it. If you're lucid, you know there's nothing there outside from its own side and nothing over here from your own side. It's all empty appearances. So by the power of being lucid within the context of the dream, by that power, you know the empty nature of all phenomena. But now what's weird there, it's strange, really, that you're in the midst of a dream, it's lucid, but now within a dream, do you find some coherent causal interrelationships? Or is it just all sheer chaos, random, incoherent, spattering of you know, just random events? Well, we know that's not how dreams are. They're weird, for sure. But if you, if you, if you encounter Marta in the dream, you say, Hi, Marta, how are you? You'll affect her. She'll say something like, Well, I'm really busy right now, I can't talk. Or, or, you know, but she'll give a response. She'll give a response, right? And so that's a causal sequence. Or if you do something bad to another person in the, in, in, to another person in the dream, they may retaliate. They could. Do something really nice, they might return the favor. And so there are a lot of causal sequences there. Some of them clearly bizarre, violating the laws of physics and so forth, flying and things like that. But nevertheless, there are causal interrelationships which are coherent inside a dream. But isn't that kind of weird? Because there's nobody there. And what is most weird, I mean, I just found it so strange when I had my first lucid dreams. It's really just weird. Is that, let's take Marta, imagine Marta crops up in my dream, and I ask her something, like, uh, Sunday's up, would you like to go out and maybe see some of the islands? Maybe a group of us can go out. You know, simple question. You know, I wouldn't ask it, I'm here to meditate. But you know, that's not a bad question. Right? I don't know what she's going to say. Isn't that weird? She might scold me. She might say, oh yes, let's have a group of us go out, we'll have a picnic. She might say, you're the worst meditation teacher I've ever met. You know? She might throw a brick at me. There's no telling. I have no idea what she's going to say. But she's a figment of my imagination. So if she's my figment, I should have some idea, some clue, right? But even in a lucid dream, you don't. You don't control. If you really want to control, then of course you can. But if you're just having a lucid dream, isn't it strange? That was my second lucid. I've told it so many times. Going into that diner in my dream and asking people whether they knew they're dreaming, I thought they'd be more interested. <laughs> Frankly, exactly like when I wrote Taboo of Subtivity, I thought, whoa, this is going to make some waves. <laughs> it's, it's the same, you know? Your expectations, even in your own dream, don't necessarily come up. I thought at least one person would say, man, you're really cool, or, or something but not just ignore me entirely. Finding their hamburgers more interesting than my newsflash, this is a dream. But nobody rose to the bait. Everybody ignored me in the whole diner. So I stopped talking. <laughs> I woke up. <laughs> I left the diner. <laughs> so, running on a bit. But there it is. So, but that's what he's saying here. Let's go back to it. And that is, oh, there was the point. If you really have the Dzogchen view 
insofar as you're viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa, by the power of that realization, by the power of being awake, viewing reality from perspective of Rikpa, then by the power of that, you know that every phenomenon is empty of inerrant nature, exactly as in illusory. You may realize emptiness and not realize Rikpa. And once again, the parallel is exact. And that is, you could be in the midst of a dream. And in the midst of a dream, you could meet a meditation teacher. In fact, we had a retreat here not too long ago. A fellow has had a lot of lucid dreams. And he told me about one of his dreams in, in a personal interview. And he said, I had a dream that, you know, over the past week. And I was dreaming along non-lucidly, having an ordinary dream. And somebody came up to me and said, you know, this is a dream. And then he became lucid. I get to hear a lot of really cool things when I interview people. So you may have a person who not only just gives you pointing out instructions, because that's what that was, <laughs> and suddenly become lucid. I mean, what was it? Lama Karesa, what was his name? Tatantuku. Tatantuku, you know, who's kind of vanished for most people off the globe like 20, 30 years ago. Stephen Leberge, the lucid dream guy, he, he had some connection with Lama Tachin, like this is 30, 40 years ago, long, long time ago. And Lama, and I say Lama Tachin, Tachantuku. And Tachantuku's English back then was very poor. And I think they were at Esalen. Stephen Leberge told me they were at Esalen. And Tachantuku was giving this kind of like workshop there. You know. And his English was poor, but he got to the point. He said, this dream. <laughs> that was his teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many people woke up, but it was certainly to the point. <laughs> and Stephen LeBerge remembered it, and I think that facilitated his very rich, lucid dreaming experience. So, but in that stream, a hypothetical dream, this is all very reasonable, what I'm about to say. I think you can imagine this, but I could be. You could be in a dream, non-lucid, so as far as you're, you're, you're concerned, you're just alive. You might meet somebody in the dream who's appearing to you, like a Dalai Lama or some great Majamaka master, great yogi, like Genlam Rimba, spent a lot of time meditating on emptiness. He really did. He really had to make... And so did Geshe Raptan. Spent six years in retreat. Meditation and emptiness was a central theme for him. Really big. And so you might meet a Genlam Rimba or Geshe Raptan or any other yogi who has profound realization. That appearance could come up. Why not? And then if you're having a nice leisurely dream that goes on for a while, you might receive instruction on Majamaka Vipassana. Right? Why not? Why couldn't you? And in the dream, again, you don't know it's a dream, you might be meditating on that and then probing into, the, doing this ontological analysis, investigating the very nature of reality in the reality you're experiencing. And if you're doing the practice clearly, with intelligence, with penetration, maybe a bit of shamatha thrown in, you might start realizing, why not? That these phenomena you're experiencing, not a single one exists from its own side, has its own inherent nature. You might start with yourself and say, there's no, there's no person to be found. There's no self to be found. There's just, by the power of designation, that's the only way I exist here, but without conceptual designation, there's no one here from my side. And then I turn my attention outwards, and I sound, my goodness, it's the same for other phenomena, that they're there, but only by the power of conceptual designation, but not from their own side. And in the midst of your, what we, outsiders, know to be your dream, you might really have some very deep insight into emptiness in your non-lucid dream while you're meditating and in in-between sessions. Then as you're just engaging with the world, having tea, walking and talking and so forth, 
then you would be doing the post-meditative practice, which is, is called illusory-like or illusion-like samadhi. It's space-like samadhi when you're in meditative equipoise. It's illusion-like, right? Illusion-like samadhi in between sessions. So in between sessions. Isn't it cute? In between sessions, now that you've had some realization of emptiness while you're formally in meditation, really engaging in ontological analysis, then you come out and you experience all these appearances around you, the people, your body, places, and so forth, and you would really have this ongoing, lingering sense, wow, this is all like an illusion, this is all like a dream. And everybody outside your dream, if, if they could be peeking in, they'd be laughing their heads off. There you are in a dream saying, wow, this is really like a dream. Really like a dream. And they're saying, well, I mean, you can imagine them. You know, the Buddha's having a party. and say, oh, man. look at this guy in a dream. And he's thinking, it's like a dream. It's like a dream. And pass the beer. This is just too rich. You know? <laughs> so you may have that realization. And, of course, not know you're dreaming. It's just really dream-like. Right? But if you're that close, if you've realized the emptiness of phenomena within the dream, and then somebody comes over to you, like came to this fellow who came to one of these retreats, and said, you know, this is not like a dream. This dream. And then maybe, why not, whack you with a sandal, right? <laughs> then you can become lucid, because you're so close. You're already seeing things to be so dreamlike, right? And then whack. And then this sudden radical shift of perspective. Instead of viewing the dream from inside the dream, as the dreamed person, you're viewing the dream from the perspective of waking consciousness and viewing the dream from outside the dream. So that's what he's getting at here. Eventually, you'll never be separated from the awareness that, that the appearances of this life in the waking state are like dreams and illusions. Like someone shopping in a market without satiation. Gosh, I didn't think I'd ever see shop till you drop in a Tibetan. <laughs> Isn't that what it is? I mean, he's talking about a mall rat, right? <laughs> and this is nomadic Tibet 150 years ago. This guy definitely knew what was coming. Like someone shopping in a market without satiation. A mall rat, shop till you drop. You know, teenage teeny boppers just going to... Can't stop shopping. <laughs> you will practice with zeal and great courage, like a teenager on a shopping spree. <laughs> like a traveler from a distant land who has achieved his great goal and does not lose it to enemies or thieves when he sets out on the road, do not succumb to activities involving the eight mundane concerns, such as the great obstacles of entertainment, distractions, defeating your enemies and protecting your loved ones. And so, well, he just every single sentence is attended to very closely. His point here is that you really may have some profound realization. You know? And then, especially if the people around you are not into it, you know, and that's kind of like common, and you come under this way, and you say, you know, take a little bit of break. We're heading off on this. I might have a number of students, their parents are constantly in, in retreat. 
And the parents are constantly saying, it's really cool your retreat, but we're going on a vacation now. Please come. Or it's Christmas. You gotta please come home. Oh, we're going on another vacation. Oh, your grandma's sick. Please come home. You know, because what you're doing in retreat has no value for them at all. As far as they're concerned, you're completely wasting your time. Right? And so anything is good reason to get you out. Oh, I've got an ingrown toenail. Please come out. Help, 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 help. I'm your mother. Don't you want to help your mother? <laughs> I thought you Buddhists took care of your mothers. I'm your mother. <laughs> They'll find any reason to get you out, any reason to derail you. My beloved father, and I say that with total sincerity, when I was off in India doing things that absolutely made no sense to him at all, he said, I'll send you the money to fly home now. Otherwise, you can swim home. I was in India. That would have been a long swim. It's only out of love. It was not cruelty. But what I was doing made no sense at all. I was throwing away my whole future. Everything. Education, future career, family. Everything good in life, I was completely throwing away. And he would have done just about anything to get me back. And that's the most intense thing he did. Take the money now and come home or swim home because you're not getting any more money, even my own money. It was my money, but he can control the bank account. So I say that with no criticism. I hope that's obvious. He was acting as a loving father. What more do you want of a father? To do the very best he possibly can for his son. And that's what he was absolutely convinced was the best thing. And from his perspective, he was right. He changes the perspective later, but years later. Right? So people who don't understand don't expect them to value it. Do expect them to feel any excuse is a good excuse to get you out of what you're doing. Right? And so then, and then we fall under the, uh, under the eight mundane concerns of entertainment, distraction, defeating our enemies, protecting your loved ones, and so forth. And he says, adhering to this crucial point is the sublime quintessence for all Dharma practitioners, so be aware of it. Even if you've had some deep experience, you're a savvy meditator, experienced meditator, don't be too confident. You can fall back. Even, from, even within, within one lifetime, let alone from one lifetime to the next. It does happen. Even to some very accomplished meditators. It's not speculation. There's one yogi in past life, very formidable. Very formidable. I'm going to keep it a course about him. But he is formidable. Real yogi died, reincarnation found, didn't get, the, didn't get the upbringing he needed. And I know one of his disciples who was, did retreats under him, long retreat under him, and uh, he said of, his, of the incarnation of his own guru, he didn't turn out well. Yeah. He didn't get the training he needed as a child. And he said of his own guru's incarnations, it didn't turn out well. Hard. This is Tibetan, Tibetan, you know. So the continuity, continuity throughout the course of the life is crucial, continuity from one life to the next. It's only where there with the fountain, unless you're going to finish the whole path in this lifetime, the path has to go from one life to the next. You have to do everything you can to see this continuity. You know? It's kind of, the stakes are high. So a little bit more. By practicing in this way, those of superior faculties attain, rain, uh, attain enlightenment 
as a great transference rainbow body. Now, this is right at the end of the Vajra essence, right? By practicing in this way, he just described it, those of superior faculties attain enlightenment as a great transference rainbow body. Pochen jalu, in Tibetan, pochen jalu roa. Without reliance upon death or their full lifespan. So this is the, that's the spectacular one. Not many in the history of Buddhism in Tibet, very, very few achieved that. I think I mentioned, I know I mentioned before, Padmasambhava did. Vimala and Vimalamitra, his contemporary, did. They're both Indian. And then in the, oh, what was it? I can't remember the century, maybe 13th century. Chesin, Chesin, he achieved great transference in body. And there might have been one other, very few. When we consider how many great yogis, how many had achieved rainbow body, you know, the body dissolving into light at death, uh, they're like every 10 years or so. There's lots of them. Dujum Lingba disciple, 13 of them, right? But the Pochen Jalu is you don't die. It's not what happens when you expire, you breathe out, and then gradually your body dissolves into shimmering light and you leave your hair and nails behind. That's a lower level. The highest level of rainbow body is called the Great Transference Rainbow Body. And this is where you're in perfectly good health. And you're like 45, your lifespan is not finished, you're not sick, you're, not, you're just doing fine. But you've come to the end of the path and, and you're a person of superior, superior faculties. And while still alive, the materiality of your body I mean, the, I mean, we're talking about atoms, molecules, atoms, down to elementary particles of matter. They are all, they all um, are withdrawn into Dhammadhatu. Or I think it's pretty safe to say into the, it's called Yeshiki Lung, the energy of primordial consciousness. So here they are manifesting in this gross, coarse fashion as, as matter. Well, that matter ultimately emerges from, is an effulgence, an expression in the Dzogchen view of Primordial consciousness, the non-duality of primordial consciousness, absolute space of phenomena, dhammadhatu, and both of those are non-dual from the energy of primordial consciousness, yeshik lum, so it's the Buddhist trinity, space, consciousness, and energy, infinite, transcendent, boundless, and there's a complete non-duality or non, how should we say, all three are utterly indivisible, and this is the ground from which all the phenomenal world ultimately arises. Well, when you achieve the great transference rainbow body, there's an inversion of that. And while you're still alive in perfectly good health, every aspect of the materiality of your body dissolves right back into this ultimate ground. And you don't die. You don't die. You didn't just die. It's just the materiality of your body. And of course, the associated energy and the associated mental states have all dissolved into this ultimate ground. And so... You dissolve into that, and then as you wish, whenever you wish, it could be like, it could be like, like if you blink, you could miss it. The person's body completely dissolves into primordial energy, and in the next moment, out of compassion, reemerges, but doesn't reemerge as matter. Reemerges with the appearance of matter, which is to say you can touch, you can, I mean, all the five senses. You can see, you can hear, and so forth, including touch. But it's kind of like touching somebody in a dream or picking up a hammer and whacking it on, your, on the palm of your hand in a dream. It feels like a hammer, right? Cold, hard, really hard, hard, hard. 
And it certainly feels that way. Is there any, are there any atoms there in that hammer that you're banging on your hand? None. Does it certainly feel like a hammer? You betcha. Right? And so they may appear in one or infinite number of places, but they appear, although they appear to be physical when they come back, there is no physicality to them at all. Which is to say when they leave, so Padmasambhava having achieved great transference rainbow body, he didn't die. There's no references to him dying. He just finished what he needed to do in Tibet. And then, bye. Just withdrew. But he didn't die. This the only exit, this only way not to die is that way. That's the only way not to die. And the simple reason for that is there's nothing to die. There's nothing left to die. All that might have died has already been consumed and withdrawn back into the ultimate ground. Your mind is nothing other than Dharmakaya. Your speech is nothing other than the energy of Dharmakaya. Your body is nothing other than Namanakaya. And so there's just nothing to die. Right? And so it's, I find it quite interesting in this text, revealed in the 1860s, that he makes any reference to it at all. Because it's rare. I mean, everybody knows that. It's very, very rare. And yet he doesn't write it off. Say, well, you know, it's 19th century, getting things pretty degenerate. Next century is probably going to be worse. So, you know, pray to be born in a pure realm. And he says, well, great transference rainbow body. There it is. So I had this sense. Of course, you know I have faith. But I had this sense he wasn't kidding. You know, wasn't joking. He didn't say in the old days you should have been there. That in the old days, you know, people really achieve that. But of course, you schmucks nowadays, forget it. He doesn't say that. He could. Lamas can be very blunt. But he didn't. So I find that interesting. So... That's a, a superior faculties. They achieve great transference rainbow body without reliance upon death or their full lifespan. They don't die and they don't live out their full lifespan. They transmute right while they're in good health and don't die at all. Those of middling faculties are liberated during the dying process with no intermediate period in the nature of ultimate reality. That's dharmata. So these are the people, the first one, yeah, so these are the people who achieve perfect awakening in the bardo of Dharmata, which we will not get to in this retreat. But that's right after the clear light of death. There comes this relatively brief bardo called the bardo of Dharmata, or ultimate reality, with all the peaceful and wrathful deities manifesting and so forth. That is the time when you may achieve enlightenment. Uh, and you do so as Sambhogakaya, and then you're enlightened there in that phase. It's said that uh, Tsongkhapa, Tsongkhapa achieved enlightenment in that phase. right? So that's for middle, middling, uh, middling faculties. And those of inferior faculties merge the mother and clear light, mother and child clear light in the intermediate period. That's simply the bardo, called the bardo of becoming, and attain liberation. So others maybe go all the way through the dying process, the bardo of dhanata, ultimate reality, and then not gain realization there, and then slip into just the intermediate state, the bardo, which is called the transitional phase of becoming. And in that, which has a very dreamlike quality to it, then in that context, really like achieving enlightenment in a dream, it's analogous to that, where you realize the mother clear light, which is the ground clear light, pristine awareness, and the child clear light is that which you've gained, gained some realization of over the course of your practice. You realize the non-duality of those two. And you may achieve liberation in that way. So three different ways. Two of them, in, 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 one of them in this lifetime, before you even die. The other one right in the dying process, the other one after you're really dead, but you're in the bardo. So, so that's that. 
And we don't have much more time tonight, so I'm not going to do any more. We'll have this tomorrow evening. What he does is, uh, the rest of it, I think you have the text by now, yeah, uh, is, I say quite seriously, a backup plan. A backup plan. Right? I mean, really, optimally, you would have practiced everything and you'd achieve enlightenment in this lifetime or in the bardo or in the, or in the bardo of becoming. But if that doesn't work out or you die, you know, suddenly you find, oh, I just was diagnosed with a terminal disease and I'm going to die in a month. Or something like that. Or you just had an accident. You're going to die in 10 minutes. Something unexpected came up. Not a yum. <laughs> Your karma just ran out. You know? Then you might be thinking, well, was there a, did you have a backup plan? <laughs> you know, because I'm going to be dead in two days. Is there a backup plan? And that's what he gives here. Backup plan. Okay? You may not need it. But if you do need it, it'd be really nice to have it. Okay, if plan A doesn't work out, plan B would be pretty cool. Hola, so. We have a couple of minutes. Uh, I don't want to go more to the text. It kind of has to be done all in one session. And so, any comments or questions thus far? Just something really quite to the point? Camille, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, as far as... Um, I've got a question which is more to do with um, this transitional stage uh, between the desire realm, so the f achieving the shamatha and then transforming consciousness into the uh, form realm. Right. And as far as the mindfulness of breathing practice is concerned, there seem to be clear uh, distinctive intermediate stages that uh, allow you to de um, um, discriminate where you are. Uh, so you mentioned this casinas, so the, the subtle, the breath, then you focus more on this mental sort of uh, image and the then you progress time. from then on. Right. Um, it seems that here the emphasis during this course is more on the, the mind as a path and this Jogchen approach. So even though you, you re-emphasize the importance of the breath, uh, it's more or less peripheral kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether in that practice that we are going to continue over the next two months, there are any distinctive intermediate transitional stages that one could focus. Not that I'm anticipating to go to the former, well, no, it's, it's just a curiosity question. Sure. No, why not anticipate going to the form realm? And it's a matter of time. I mean, eight weeks would be pretty sensational. <laughs> but I won't say impossible. You know, it's not for me to say. No, it's a perfectly good question. Very, very good one. And I have been emphasizing this entry. It's kind of basically work out to be more or less the first week of the mindfulness of breathing, um, in part because it's a practice the Buddha emphasized so strongly in the Pali Canon. It's the, the most widely taught practice that he, he taught. He taught it for 45 years, so, and he taught it so quintessentially. Uh, so number one, it's a, it's a wonderful practice, but also in this particular interpretation, this very literal interpretation, which I've given a number of times now, uh, this segue from that, the transition from this mindfulness of breathing, with this, again, with this symbol, primarily simply awareness resting in its own place, the transition from that to the next major practice we'll venture into Shamatha without a sign, as taught by Padmasambhava, is so smooth, it's silky. It's really, really smooth. But there's something about the breath is that it's, it's notorious, been known for centuries, that it's really good for you, the mindfulness of breathing. It's good for you. It calms the body. It soothes the body. It balances the whole energy system. Uh, and we, in, the, in our modern world, I won't say East and West, because I don't believe in that much anymore, but modernity versus traditional culture, that I believe in. We living in modernity, and that's all of us, right? We really need to unwind. We, we mustn't pretend as we're Tibetans or Mongolian nomads or people living in the 
you know, northern jungles of Thailand, whatever. We're not, you know. And so we really need to take that into account, that we're bringing a configured nervous system here, a prana system here, that has a fair amount of remedial work to be done if these practices are going to bear the kind of fruit that they have for some centuries. In other words, we have to have a body, a nervous system, more like what they had 100 years ago, 500 years ago, and not bring in this whacked out, burnt out, you know, multitasking, crazy body-mind that's become normal. So what's normal for us was not normal 100 years ago in Tibet, 500 years ago in Tibet, Bhutan, and so forth and so on. So that's why I've been emphasizing this, that it's really a good grounding, a place to release, to relax. It's very healthy. And then the transition over to awareness of awareness can be very smooth. Now to answer your question, because it's a very good one. And clearly, the Buddha taught the mindfulness of breathing as not just a little stepping stone to some other shamatha practice, but one that can take you at least all the way to shamatha, but first, second, third, fourth jhana. He doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, now switch to this technique. All the way through, fourth jhana, mindfulness of breathing. So it doesn't have clear signposts, as in the classic Theravada, that is, Buddhaghosa, of preliminary sign, acquired sign, counterpart sign. But that's the only place you find that. That is, for all the other methods, that is, in Theravada, yes. But for the whole Indo-Tibetan current, there's no references to preliminary sign, acquired sign, counterpart sign. It's more of a smoother continuum. For this particular practice, then what I would suggest is the, the signposts, because it's nice, it's a very reasonable question, that it's not just, am I completely lost and bewildered, or have I achieved shamatha yet? You know, is there something in between where you can say, okay, I'm not there yet, but you know, I'm one-third of the way. I'm not there yet, but now it's kind of two-thirds of the way. Are there some signposts? And the answer is yes. They're called the nine stages of shamatha, the nine stages leading to shamatha. And Penjin, the Penjin Rinpoche, the one who you know, I, 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 I've taught it many... In fact, I think, I, yes, I taught that in the, in the CEB teacher training, that one page by Penjin Rinpoche. I'm quite sure I taught it. Remember? Uh, where he's teaching observing the mind and then also just cutting off thoughts. You remember that? Yeah? So basically awareness of awareness. He commented, not in the section that I taught there in Scotland, but elsewhere in the same text. He said, whatever method you're following, whatever method of shamatha, from start to finish you will be passing through those nine stages. You may not know what they are. You may not know how to identify them. But if you finish the job, fast, slow, fast, slow, slow, fast, fast, you know, there are many ways of doing it, but you'll pass through those nine stages. And so the signposts are there. Then I've written about those in detail in the Attention Revolution. Uh, they're not so, str- not so strongly emphasized in the Nyingma, in tradition, but they don't refute it. But you find there that... Uh, well, the, the Lama Mipam Rinpoche gives the analogies that the thoughts are like cascading waterfall, like the mountain brook, and so forth. So he gives some signposts there. But overall, of course, as I've said before, is that the, um, the degree of excitation, the degree of getting knocked off your rocker and being carried away, or even having the noise, the peripheral noise, or a little mild noise, that's all dying down. And then right out of the center, right out of the center, right out of your awareness itself, the sheer radiance, the luminosity, the clarity of awareness just becomes more and more and more unveiled. So what you're finding is less and less noise, less and less excitation, greater, greater clarity, but it's coming with breathtaking simplicity. That is, you're not shifting method. And so this is very much a discovery path where it's just rising to, to, it's rising to meet you and... The stillness is just becoming more still. 
the clarity is becoming more clear. What can one say? But it's a discovery path. And just to correct one minor phrasing there, but it's not trivial. I'm not nitpicking. The practice of settling the mind in its natural state, which you're familiar with because we just did it, that's taking the mind as the path. And that is what, that's what you're attending to along the path. You may take the Buddha image as your path. You may take a pearl of, of light at your heart as your path. That can be legitimate practice. And that's your path. That's your vehicle. That's your train to get from here to there. Right? You can also take the mind as the path. And that's where you're tending to thoughts, emotions, the whole thing, and all the way through until they've totally vanished. That's taking the mind as a path. That's called settling the mind as natural state. But that's not what we're doing here. Not what, and especially tomorrow, I think probably tomorrow we'll start. Uh, this practice of shamatha without a sign is not taking the mind as the path because you're not deliberately looking at it. The thoughts, image, and so forth, they happen. You just don't give them any attention. It's not what you're attending to because you're not attending to anything. There's no vector to your attention. Here's your vector. But it's not looking up there. It's just straight awareness illuminating itself. And so, so we say, well, what are you taking as your path? I've just said it. Awareness is your path. You're taking awareness as your path. And it's the, aware, it's the awareness of your course mind, the mind you have right now, because right now you have awareness, not just a lot of thoughts and images, but right now you have awareness. You're taking that awareness which is embedded in your course mind. You're taking that awareness and you're st staying there and then the periphery of the course mind fades out, fades out, fades out, vanishes. It's awareness all the way through. But now it's uncloaked. Un it's naked. Substrate consciousness. And that's your path. Okay? Very good. Excellent. Excellent. All right. We're finished. Enjoy your meal. I'll see you tomorrow morning. You're welcome.